Have you always wanted to learn how to play the harp, but have no idea where to start? I totally know that feeling. When I first became interested in playing the harp, I didn't know where to start. I looked at Teach Yourself How to Play harp books, which were good, but I I needed more guidance. I've been wanting to put together a course that would inspire lovers of the harp just starting on their journeys. So the Your Harp Adventure series starts this June. I'm super excited about it. And this course coming up in June will be an introduction to the lover harp. I walk you through the basics of getting comfortable with your instrument, making music and improvising right from the start. You'll, you'll learn tunes by ear, as well as basics of music theory, of reading music, and you'll also have access to a live Facebook group once a week where you can ask questions and meet up with other harp players starting on their musical journeys. I know there is so much information out there, and because of that, I want you to feel the progress that you'll be making. So the video lessons are no more than 10 minutes each. So it gives you this bite-sized chunk of inspiration and information that won't be overwhelming. Plus, you can re-watch any of the videos and learn in your own time. And then you'll have access to a community of learners from around the world cheering you on with me. All of this for $59, and that includes PDFs of music and guides and templates for inspiration and practicing and more. So this launches on Monday, June 7th. So let me just tell you a bit about me. I have a master's in music education from Teachers College at Columbia University and a master's in ethnomusicology, which is like world music and and cultures and, and how music relates to who we are. That MA was from the University of Limerick's Irish World Academy of Music and Dance. Thanks to Rotary International for sponsoring my MA in Ireland by granting me an ambassadorial scholarship, which continues to inspire my love of building community around the world. I've also been teaching middle school and high school and private lessons for many years, so you're in really good hands. Plus, you'll feel more comfortable and confident heading to the summer harp festivals. So head on over to moonoverthetrees.com slash lessons to sign up for more information. I can't wait to see you. Welcome to Harp Song, presented by Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions. Bringing people together through collaboration, creativity, and community all through the arts. Thank you for joining us this week. I'm your host, Maureen Buscarino, and I hope to inspire you and to help you discover amazing music and artists from around the world. My guest today is Siobhan Armstrong. Siobhan is Ireland's foremost performer of historical harp music, playing 16th through 18th century chamber music and opera with many of Europe's most prestigious historical and traditional performers. Siobhan founded the Historical Harp Society of Ireland and is passionate about encouraging the revival of the ancient harp. 
She's also director of the Festival of Early Irish Harp, which takes place this year on July 25th through 29th online. The Festival of Early Irish Harp exists to help fill the enormous cultural gap left by the disappearance of the early Irish harp two centuries ago. This year, the festival has teamed up with the Somerset Folk Harp Festival. So you can purchase tickets to the Festival of Early Irish Harp as an add-on to Somerset or as a standalone festival. Many of my upcoming guests, including Siobhan, of course, are presenters at the festival. Siobhan is dedicated to reviving and expanding understanding of how the voice and the harp worked together in the past. And she's particularly focused on figuring out what harpers played in the lower hand. And we get into a lot of that during this interview. Um, She is just a wonderful person and so giving with her knowledge. I think you're just going to love our chat. So enjoy. Siobhan, thank you so much for being with me on the podcast today. I'm so excited to talk to you about the harp and and um, your early music and everything that you have going on right now. It's a pleasure, Maureen. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So um, I, I'm interested in how you came to discover the harp. Oh, so I was um, born in Dublin and I started playing piano when I was a small child. At some point, I think my piano teacher spotted that I had musical aptitude, but my little hands were too small to do any more uh, piano exams. So she suggested to my parents that I learn another instrument. And she was suggesting violin. But even at that stage, I think I had an interest in vocal music because I I fancy that I remember saying, I don't want to learn the violin because I can't sing with the violin. So they all said, okay, what do you want to learn? And for some reason I said the harp. Hmm. Uh, And I have no idea why, because harps... uh, this is, I suppose, the late 1970s. There weren't very many people playing the harp in Ireland. I suppose there was Mary O'Hara. And um, apart from that, I can't really think of too many people at that stage. So maybe I had heard or maybe I'd seen pictures of harps. But I, I, I don't know if you find this. I find it often when, um, when I take on younger students or when I used to teach lots of younger students, I would ask them at the first lesson, so why do you want to play the harp? And universally, they would all go, uh, um, I don't know, I just, I just want to play the harp. <laughs> and no, nobody ever seems to have a really sort of, when, when they're young, a cogent reason specifically why. So maybe I'm one of those, you know, I don't know, I just want to play the harp. Hmm. Uh, but my parents very kindly uh, went and bought an instrument and uh, a modern Irish harp, an inbush harp, which was built in Limerick. And uh, off I set with modern Irish harp lessons. Oh, Wow. How did you get into um, your love of early music from there? So I suppose I carried on as a child playing piano and harp and I took singing lessons. Um, I had theory, uh, all sorts of things. And when I uh, finished school, uh, I did a musicology degree at Trinity College in Dublin. But already I was in love with with early music. I remember as a teenager um, having singing lessons and always wanting to sing lute songs, wanting to sing Dowland and and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, My sister had also studied music 
uh, before uh, she's six years older than me and she had uh, she was studying music at a university and I remember at some point she had a recording of a, um, a Palestrina mass a polyphonic mass and I remember listening to polyphony for the first time you know and polyphony of course are you know many different lines of music sort of horizontal lines all weaving uh, a harmonic pattern together with each other and I remember falling in love with polyphony um and as a teenager, I fell in love with plain chant. I, I spent, I think I was a pretty weird teenager because um, I, I went to a Benedictine monastery in over in uh, the, the sort of uh, Limerick area um, called Glenstall Abbey, which you may know because I know you studied at University of Limerick yourself. I did, so yes. So I used to go to, yeah, to Glenstall Abbey as a teenager and I learned how to sing plain chant from Newmes and uh, did all of that. So by the time I got to college, I was already in love with early music mm. and I wound up directing... Um, college singers the university chamber choir and so we did um polyphonic masses and we did madrigals and all sorts of things um so i loved early music and there i was in my sort of second or third year of college still playing modern irish harp and having you know a good facility on that i was a good harpist i could get my get my hands around the the instrument but i really wanted to play earlier repertory so i remember for um my college recital in third year playing some handle mm. and my my you know my left hand was just going like the the clappers trying to change all the semitone levers so I could play the chromaticism <clears throat> so there was a tension there between the music I wanted to play and the instrument that I did play mm. and that was um there was a, a a chink in the door and the the, the light came on um, in my fourth year of university because Andrew Lawrence King, the um, well-known early music harpist, came to Ireland to play at um, one of the then Dublin early music festivals. And I remember going to a concert in Trinity College where he played um, an Italian arpadoppia, um, a triple in fact, it was. I'm. I'm looking at. I think that harp in the corner because I. I bought his harp later. It was a double harp, double strung, big Italian harp, two rows of strings and chromatic. And he played Arpa de dos Ordenes, this Spanish baroque harp, which also has two rows of strings mm. crossed over in an X shape. So um, I remember thinking, wow, that's the music I love, and that's the, those are the kind of instruments that you play it on. So then that was it. That was just one moment in time, and I just carried on third year, fourth year of college. And so it wasn't until I left college, I moved to Germany the following year to take up a job at a, a German music school to start a harp department. Um, and it, this was just outside Stuttgart in the south of Germany. Uh, Andrew Lawrence King showed up at the early music festival in Stuttgart mm. the following year. I didn't realize I was going to hear him because I was still, um, vocal music has always been, uh, you know, almost a predominant interest of mine. I went to a concert given by the Jesualda consort from Amsterdam and their director is uh, Harry van der Kamp. Uh, so I thought I was going to hear a vocal ensemble. And when I showed up to the concert, there was a triple harp, you know, in place on the stage. And I thought, huh. And of course, Andrew came out and was accompanying the Jeswalda concert. Mm. And it's one of those moments in life, you know, the, the sort of the make or break moments where, you know, you either do something or you don't. And I thought, well, I should really go up and chat to him and talk about early harps. And then a bit of me thought, oh, no, because I was already a performer. I thought, no, no, he isn't going to want to talk to somebody at the end of the concert and he's going to be tired. And, you know, um, in that way that we when we're tired after concerts, we don't always want to talk to people who want lots of information. I thought I want to ask him a lot of questions. Mm. He's not going to. But anyway, I thought, no, go on, talk to him. So I, I sidled up and I said, uh, you know, hi, my, my, I'm from Ireland and I, I play Irish harp and I'm really curious about your harps. And he went, you play Irish harp? You're from Ireland? Do you want to come and have a cup of coffee? I thought, wow, that's not what I was expecting. <laughs> so he was unbelievably gracious and helpful. 
And it turned out he was starting to play early Irish harp at that time. And so he was really keen to talk to somebody from Ireland who might give him oh. heads up, you know, on the music. And I was really keen to talk to somebody who could play a, um, an Italian triple harp. So, um, so off we went. So he said, uh, you should, you know, I teach in Bremen in North Germany. So you should come up sometimes and we'll, you know, we'll do a course together on medieval and Irish music. And so in the, in the end, I started taking lessons with Andrew. I bought my first um, Italian harp uh, and then I would drive 500 miles up, you know, up country for my lesson mm. and he very kindly started giving me uh, concerts and things to do so wow. off you know off I went and there so now I was finally playing the music I loved on instruments that um the instruments that were appropriate for it mm. um but it took me a long time to start playing my own historical harp. So there I was living in Germany and lined up, I had an Italian harp, a Spanish harp, a medieval, you know, Gothic harp with one row of strings. And I had a Kamak lever harp. Um, and slowly, slowly, the Kamak started to look like the cuckoo in the nest. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, a really good instrument, well-built, but it had these plastic semitone levers and then they were like red and white and blue. And it just didn't fit with all these historical instruments. But it took another... It took another year or two before I finally, I, and I remember again, it was one of those make or break days. I was sitting there with a, with a harp trying to arrange Eleanor Plunkett or one of the well-known Carolyn tunes. And I suddenly thought, but this isn't the harp that Carolyn played. And, and you know, he, this isn't the way, presumably, I don't think he would have arranged this tune. It just felt all wrong suddenly. It just, it just didn't gel anymore for me. And at that stage, um, I tried to find my first early Irish harp and, and get interested in all of that. So a, a whole new chapter started for me. Wow. How, how did you find your first early Irish harp? Well, I can't quite remember how it went. I think the first thing was that I realized that Anne Heyman was the go-to person for early Irish harp. Um, so I got a copy of her, um, her first book, uh, Secrets, Secrets of the Gaelic Harp. And then I thought, well, I need an instrument. So uh, I remember that Bill Taylor in Scotland very kindly uh, found me an instrument straight away. I couldn't wait to have one built. I needed one now. <laughs> and so Bill had some, they had some old things sitting around in their, the workshop at Article Harps. And um, I can't remember if I went to get it or Bill got it for me. But I remember at that moment, um, I was doing a, a big production with Les Affloissons, the, the French Baroque group of... An, you know, some Italian opera, I can't remember, it's likely to be Monteverdi or something. Um, and so we were going around Europe with this opera. And I remember dragging my big uh, triple, my sorry, my big up because I was still playing my, my double strung harp at that stage, and an early Irish harp. So every time wow. we stopped rehearsing the opera, Siobhan would be in a side room working through Secrets of the Gaelic Harp. <laughs> so uh, that's how I started. It was Anne's book, and an instrument very kindly lent to me by Bill Taylor. Oh, wow. And um, and how long after that did you form the the Historical Harp Society of Ireland? Oh, um, let's think. I think the next thing that happened was I realized that I should go and see Anne Heyman mm. in the flesh. Um, so I made my way to Minnesota at some point after that in my, you know, my, my mid twenties and Anne couldn't have been kinder or more generous. I mean, I think she's well known for her collegiality and her generosity of spirit, but she was just amazing. She just sort of sucked me into her house and sort of spat me out three days later, having filled my head with um, information and knowledge and enthusiasm. Uh, and I think after that, 
the road sort of led to Scotland in that Bill Taylor and his piping colleague, Barnaby Brown, and a few people had um, a conference in Scotland for those of us. I think they called it a fingernail technique conference. Hmm. So it was, it was for those of us who were playing those instruments with, where, um, with fingernails. And that was interesting because I, m- I met so many of my colleagues. I think my Spanish colleague, Javier Sainz, who plays early Irish harp in the north of Spain, he came to it. Um, I met Simon Chadwick, who's a great expert on early Irish harp. And Simon was there. And Heyman came over. I think Alison Kinnaird might have shown up. Hmm. Um, I can't remember. There were, there were quite a few of us there. And I remember thinking, wow, they're really getting it together in Scotland. This is fantastic. But it was quite embarrassing because nothing much was really happening in Ireland. And I was teaching early Irish harp. I, I remember teaching at Amherst um, on the east coast of the USA at one point. And people saying to me after class, great, well, so, um, you know, can we come to Ireland? Is there a course in Ireland that we can carry on with? And I'd have to kind of shiftily look at my watch and go, oh, is that the time? Must be off. And I was thinking, that's really very shameful that there's nothing happening. And then, of course, Anne Heyman, you know, she's such such a wonderful person. She she was the one who pushed me. She said, you've really got to get something started in Ireland. And she gave me the the courage and the get up and go to do it. So... In 2002, I think, might have been 2003, can't quite remember, um, I thought, okay, let's have a little summer course. And I said to Anne, how about you come over and teach it with me? But I've, I've got no money to do this. So I will, you can stay at my house. Um, I'll pay your airfare over, but I have no idea if I can pay you a fee or not. And she super kindly said, mm. yeah, that's fine. I'll come over. Wow. So the two of us put on this course um, I, do, I have no idea how I did it. I, I made lots of soup and put it in the freezer. I baked loads of bread and put it in the freezer. I administrated the course, put the whole thing on, taught classes and served all the lunches. Wow. 12 people showed up. I have, again, I have no idea how we did the marketing or, you know, how we got 12 people to show up. And the next year, 12 people showed up and then it started to take off. And now I think we're in our 19th year. So wow. that's, it's really incredible. Um, but again, all thanks to Anne's enthusiasm and support that she came over and made that possible for us to do it. So um, I wasn't thinking of starting a society or anything like that. I just had a modest idea of let's put on a little thing in Ireland. And so instead of it being an organization that I founded that put on a summer festival, it was the other way around. It was a summer festival that then started to gather momentum and turned into an organization Mm. because we had then, you know, people who wanted to carry on and it's like, well, fine, but where do we get instruments? So we, we needed to start having instruments built and we needed various projects. And so somehow very organically, the Historical Harp Society of Ireland was formed. Wow. And I, I know Anne Heyman is so passionate about the early um, Irish harp being not centered in the United States where she is, but she wants it. She always says she wants it to be given back to Ireland and for Ireland to. That, yeah. That so. was the amazing thing that she was so unequatistical about it. There she, there she was, the world expert. She could have built something around her in America, but she so sees the bigger cultural picture and she's so generous. That, that was exactly what she said to me years ago. She said, you should do something in Ireland before, you know, before I do anything in America, you should do it because there needs to be something in Ireland. And that's, that's an incredible, isn't that just an incredible viewpoint to have? Absolutely. You know, she's, she's a very special person, I'd have to say. And she's come over year after year and has, um, has been a welcome guest here and we've loved having her. And she's, we've been the recipient of all her 
wisdom and knowledge for nearly two decades. Mm. So it, it is fitting that um, that she'll be given the Lifetime Achievement Award this year. Yeah, we just thought it's high time. And I, I, I have a funny feeling she has a big birthday this year. I couldn't possibly <laughs> say which one. Uh, but we thought this is a good year to give her a Lifetime Achievement Award to show our appreciation for all she's done for the instrument. Mm. Oh, she's just so generous in, in her studies. And, you know, um, when I was speaking to her, I really was interested in, in, through research, how do you find out how these instruments were performed? Um, you know, I mean, how it's different than than the modern Irish harp. Um, so what, what makes... Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's the really interesting question is, you know, what makes it different... Um, what are we doing that's different to what's been done before? Um, and I suppose we we go at it from all sorts of different angles that we find relevant. So, um, of course, again, it was Anne who introduced first introduced me to the, the the field notebooks of Edward Bunting, who wrote the music down in the 1790s, just as the tradition was absolutely dying out. He managed to capture little bits of it. Um, so we're looking at the um, the source, the surviving source material. So I suppose within an academic contest text, you'd call that research-led practice. So we're trying to play the music, but we're we're searching it from the the best source and oldest sources we can. Um, but then you have the practice-led research aspect of it, which is you need to build copies of the harps of the time. And they're going to teach you what they like and what they don't like, what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, what they will allow you to do and what they will really not allow you to do. So it's a two-pronged thing, the sources on one side and the instruments on the other. Hmm. Um, But then we, at our festival, for example, we invite the best living traditional music masters from Ireland and the Scottish Highlands because our tradition's a dead tradition it died out around 1800 there's a it's just that's it it's mm-hmm. over there's no link between that tradition and the modern tradition so how do we how do we recreate the the taste the flavor the style the idiom but so um, our way of thinking is that if we can interact with the best players of illan pipes or fiddle or shanno singers then maybe we could put back into our field something of what got lost. Mm. Maybe maybe that's not a plausible thing to do, but it's the best and only thing I can think of to do to try to get the flavor back in. So, so we so we do that as well. Do, do, so um, some of those harp tunes you think um, were picked up by fiddle players and singers um, and not preserved? Not necessarily. Or? No, no I, I wouldn't go that far. It's not necessarily. It's just that they're... Um, their sense of aesthetics and how they phrase the music and what they think is important. Um, we should know what that is. So, for example, every morning at our festival, the first thing you do is that you have an hour with a living music master and you get to ask them questions and they get to tell you what they think is important and they get to show you and demonstrate. So there's, a, there's an interactive um, situation that needs to happen between the people between those of us who want to play the music and those of us who are masters at a sort of parallel, some kind of parallel tradition. That's my hope, you know? Mm. Um, And I suppose the other, then, you know, some of the other fronts we tackle it on are that we have cutting scientific edge work, uh, work going on. So last year in January, 
January of 2020, just before the, the lockdown, uh, we had Dr. Karen Loomis come from the USA, who's the world's foremost organologist. So she deals with the, the physicality and the, the sciencyness of the instruments. And she came and uh, headed up a project for us at the National Museum of Ireland. And so it was the it's the first um, of our projects to do a scientific survey of one particular of the 18 surviving harps, because there are 18, about 18 um, surviving early Irish harps in the world. One of which, of course, you have in America, in Boston, at the Museum of Fine Arts, you've got the Bunworth, beautiful Bunworth harp, huge, mm. big 18th century harp. So Karen came over and she uh, and her research um, colleague was Simon Chadwick. So the two of them worked on the Hollybrook harp, which is an 18th, a beautiful 18th century Irish harp. And we're just about to, um, to put up the results of all of that study on our new website, which is coming in the next week or two. Oh. So hopefully by the time this podcast goes out, people will be able to go to irishharp.org and they'll be able to see the Hollybrook project. And we are super proud because... Mm. Um, we, we had things like 3D laser scans done wow. so that for heart builders now, they have exact, very precise measurements, cross sections uh, and templates that they can use to build copies of this harp. Wow. So that's just one, one part of it. So it's really exciting project to put 21st century science together with an old Irish instrument. I think that's, that's it's something that excites incredible. me quite a lot. Uh, and the strings, like how would you, do you, um, I know Anne Heyman, she, has some some of her strings are gold, some are silver. Um, she, she's played around with like the different types of brass strings right. and and things. So um, exactly. So there's so this is this is all part of that project. So I suppose once we have um, a co a very accurate copy built, then it's time to play around with the stringing hmm. and see if you use your yellow brass or red brass or what gauges or you know how you how you deal with that. So a preliminary would be to have these excellent templates so we can build really we can raise the bar for instrument building and then you start to experiment and have fun and see, wow. you know, see where it takes you. That's amazing. That's so incredible. Yeah. It's uh, really, it's really amazing. So I'm really grateful to Karen and Simon for all the amazing work they've done. And then Karen has put together these fabulous reports that you can just download all the PDFs. You have all the information at your fingertips, free gratis and for nothing. Wow. It's all free. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, do you play jigs and reels on, on the, like what type of repertoire do these harps have? Hmm. Um, I personally don't. On my first uh, CD, which I think I made in 2004, um, I put some, some jigs and possibly reels on. I can't remember, certainly jigs, um, because I was trying to sort of keep up with what people do on modern harps because people play jigs and reels on modern harps. So I kind of felt obliged to do that. But I've since realized that that's not, that's not the historical repertory for my harp. So I don't, I, and I actually, I don't have very fast fingers. I can't compete on the reels front. I mean, there are so many extraordinary um, modern Irish harp players in Ireland who play stunningly well. I, uh, so that's, that's not for me. I can't, I can't compete. And I actually don't want to compete because it's, that's not what I'm interested in doing. So what I'm interested in playing is the historical repertory for the instrument, you know, until the turn of the 19th century. And remember, reels, the reel didn't show up in Ireland until the 18th century. That's not, I mean, if you talk about what's traditional, it's just not that old. Um, those, some of those dance forms came from Europe, mm. you know, polkas and reels. And right, mazurkas. Like showed and up quite late. So they almost post-date the instrument. They almost post-date the harp in Ireland. Um, so 
Um, I'm very interested in playing the earliest medieval repertoire up to the end of the 18th century. So that begins with plain chant and the accompaniment of plain chant in an ecclesiastical church church music context. Um, but then also to play, if we jump forward to the 17th and 18th century, to um, resurrect the harp song genre, because there's a whole genre that's missing in Ireland of harp songs. So Carolyn, for example, when he... Uh, when we hear Carolyn nowadays, we tend to hear the melodies, you know, a Carolyn tune. But nine times out of ten, they're not tunes, they're songs. Hmm. So we need to be, or not that we need to be, but I want to hear those songs again. So I work with really stylish Shannon singers and I work with um, harpist singers who want, like Eilish um, uh, Nirudon, who's an amazing a Shannon singer in Ireland who started to play early Irish harp mm. and sing the harp song genre. So I work with all of those people to try and recreate that genre. So uh, that would be one thing I do. And then to play um, the marches, the elegies, the laments, the love songs, the slow airs, all of all of the indigenous mm. or vernacular music that would have been played on the instrument. But there's a whole other side of it that I'm interested in because in general in my music making, I'm, I kind of wear two hats. So I wear this sort of European early music hat. So I'm very interested in medieval and Renaissance and Baroque European music. And that's what I generally play when I go abroad to work with early music um, opera companies and orchestras is that I'm playing um, opera chamber music or ecclesiastical music that's, that's European. Uh, but in Ireland, of course, I kind of put on an Irish music hat because I love that. And and what I really love to do best is to wear both hats at once. I suppose that's what I am, is that I, I'm unusual in that I have a foot in vernacular music and a foot in early music. And that's where I like I liked to see where those two things rub up together. That's That tends to be what my... Um, what a lot of my work is about. So I'm really interested in what the Irish harp was playing in the 16th and 17th century um, when it wasn't playing Irish music. Hmm. And you think, well, wait a minute, why would it not be playing Irish music? And well, why, wait, you know. Um, so then you have to back up a little bit and look at Irish history and realize that we had waves of, well, you could call them guests arriving over the centuries, or you could call them brutal colonizing invaders, you know, take your pick. Um, and so we, we always had, let's just call them the neighbors from the East would show up every few centuries, <laughs> try to put manners on us. And so in the 1520s and 30s, it, now it's Henry VIII's turn. And so he's trying to put manners on the Irish and, and attempt to reconquest because we've, we've sort of been getting away from getting away from, from that for, for a while. So the tutors arrive, the aristocratic tutors arrive. And I'm really curious what goes on of an evening after the, you know, the massacring and marauding. What, you know, what's everybody playing when they go back to the respective Gaelic castle or their tutor mansion? Mm. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's, that's a big interest of mine. And I, I made a, a, a CD that uh, that's coming out around now well actually it's coming out several times I actually made it quite some time ago and never got around to you know doing all the writing that would turn it into a, a real product um and I've had copies of it since I think 2018 or 2019 but I still haven't launched it so I'm hoping to launch it later later on this month so it, so people can hear it um what was the name of that project so for I beg your pardon. Oh, sorry. What was the name of that project? Just so people can keep an oh, eye out um, for it. It's called uh, Music, Ireland and the 16th Century. And I deliberately don't call it, uh, you know, 16th century Irish music because it's not all Irish. So some of these harpers 
Um, the Tudors are, of course, playing normal Tudor music, everything from, uh, well, I suppose in Henry VIII's time, they're, they're playing his music mm-hmm. and, you know, con- uh, contemporary composers from the early 16th century. And that's all French-influenced uh, sort of polyphonic music. Um, but by the end of the century, they're playing Dowland and Bird and, you know, all of the, the best-known Renaissance um, composers in England. And so the, it's a, the Tudor world is very small. The Tudor aristocracy is tiny. So they all know each other. They're all related. So um, Henry Sidney, who is the head of the uh, colony, uh, what, what's really becoming a colony in Ireland, he's in Dublin Castle. Um, his son, Philip Sidney, composes, uh, for example, uh, poetic texts that are used by William Byrd mm-hmm. in his um, Songs of Songs of Piety uh, that come out towards the end of the century. So they're all linked up. So presumably the Tudors in Ireland are playing Dowland and Byrd. They're playing lutes, they're playing harpsichords, they're playing viols. And the Irish are playing their early Irish harps. And the Tudors are dead against Irish culture because they just don't understand it. To, to them, it's this medieval barbaric culture that they can't even begin to wrap their heads around. Not that they want to, because mm-hmm. it's much easier to see the see the natives as um, degenerate and then it's much easier to the, the process of colonization is so much easier if, if they're not really human mm. so we've seen this time and time again you know over the centuries um, but somehow the Tudors hear the early Irish harp and they are entranced with it mm. so they just they they this is not something that they they want to get rid of on the contrary they employ Irish harpers in their establishments in Ireland I mean that just that's that's it's mind mind mangling when you think that they're trying to get rid of Gaelic culture, but they invite it in the door to entertain them after dinner. <laughs> they bring Irish harpers back to England with them when they when they leave from their tour of duty. In the end, they're building Irish harps in England and they're giving them as gifts to one another. <laughs> so it's it's like a colonial trophy uh, that they take back, but more than a colonial trophy, and that they really love it. So Irish harpers um, go to England from. Uh, the first one, the first Irish harper who's documented in England in the 1590s, I suppose, is uh, Cormac MacDermott. He becomes the first royal harper. Mm. He's um, employed by Elizabeth I just at the end of her reign in 1602 to 3. Then she dies, and, the, and James I, who um, becomes the next ruler, he takes on Cormac MacDermott. And after that, there are several, you know, there are, I think there are about five harpers in a row at the court who play early Irish harp. They're not all Irish, some of them are Welsh. But uh, and sometimes there are two harpers at a time, like the king has an Irish harper and the queen has an Irish harper oh, wow. all at the same time. Of course, it's extraordinary. Absolutely wow. wild. So I'm really curious, like, what are they playing? Pavins, Almains, all the dance, the dance, the Renaissance dances. Um, probably they're improvising over grand basses, you know, these riff patterns that you you play the same bass all the time and then you start riffing over it and doing mm. different things. Um, so I'm really curious. So that's why I wanted to... Um, make that recording and to do programs of 16th century Irish music is to try to get a sense of that sound world on the Gaelic side and on the Tudor side and how they interact. Wow. And how do you find this music or how do you know what their arrangements were or, or, um, Oh yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, for the Renaissance English music, it's easy because there are lots of sources, you know, they're all written down. It's all totally easy to find and, and reproduce. Um, on the Irish side, much more difficult because um, Irish harping is an oral tradition, as you know. And so nothing got written down until 
Hmm. Nothing got written down firsthand until the 1790s hmm. when Edward Bunting in Belfast started to write down music from the last, from not the last 10 Irish harpers, but there weren't, there weren't very many more than that, but from the 10 harpers who showed up to the famous gathering of harpers in Belfast in 1792. So until that moment, nobody had written down anything directly in Ireland because hmm. um, there may be, there may be a, one other option we can explore. Um, but the oldest player... In, um, in Belfast, Dennis O'Hampsey. And he, he's a man I've been studying very closely for the f- past five years because I've been doing a PhD on early Irish harp, certain aspects of early Irish harp performance practice. So I've been really looking at Dennis O'Hampsey. And uh, amazingly, he played some really old reper- repertory that Bunting copied down in the 1790s, but it might be like late medieval. There's one, uh, there's one uh, piece from a completely lost genre which are their fake and glaish harp preludes. So there, you know, you'd start start with a prelude and go into something else. And he played one fake and glaish harp prelude to Bunting. So we have one mm. that was written down. Um, and he also played elegies that were composed um, for you know aristocratic uh, patrons in maybe around the year sixteen hundred. So you can you can sort of scrabble back and see what you can find. I was curious to see what I could find from before 1600, because everybody in Ireland, even in musicological studies, everything seems to start with the year 1600. And mm-hmm. I thought, but I, I have a feeling I could, I could go a hundred years back from that if I include plain chant mm-hmm. and include all, all sorts of other things. And my, my other source was that um, if things don't get written down until the 18th century in Ireland, uh, in Scotland, we have a window into a century earlier. Hmm. So in Scotland in the 17th century, you had what we didn't have so much in Ireland, which were um, lute players because they were connected to England and because their royal court was influenced by France because you had various French princesses who married in in Scotland. They brought French musicians with them. So they had um, harpsichords and viols and, and lutes. So the lute was a popular instrument in Scotland. So there's some surviving lute manuscripts from Scotland hmm. from the early part of the 17th century and all the way through, where you have a genre called Perth, P-O-R-T, or Porsche, as they might say in, in Scotland. And Perth in Irish just means a tune, just means a melody. But in Scotland, it seems to have a connotation of a harp composition. Hmm. And so there are some sort of Perths in these manuscripts. So I, I took some of those and performed them because they seem to me to be possibly if they were written down in the 1620s then maybe they were from before the year 1600 you know maybe this is an older genre wow so just many many different ways of trying to find things in loop manuscripts and bunting's um field transcriptions from an old man in the at the the end of the 18th century Hmm. Is there any lineage with um like the monks like um as they were preserving um books and, and things in the monasteries and saving that, did they save any of the music or any of the instruments I, um, as well? You're right that, the, that this, is a, this is an interesting question because the earliest music we have written down in Ireland is, of course, monastic because monks were literate and they could write down music in neumes, you know, this old, this much older way of writing down music, which uses four lines instead of the modern five lines on a stave. Uh, so that was also fair game for me on my 16th century CD because, um, 
here where I live in Kilkenny in the southeast of Ireland, and uh, we have a cathedral here, St. Canice's Cathedral, and a, a, an enormous manuscript of plain chant has survived. It's a 15th century manuscript has survived here, which is now in Trinity College in Dublin. And it's clear there, there are indications that early Irish harps may have been used ecclesiastically in church to accompany church music. And all the way into the 18th century, I mean, Carolyn was, uh, and other harpers were playing at mass. They were playing uh, at the mass in the 18th century. Um, so we know that harps were, in, were involved in ecclesiastical music. So I have a f uh, some pieces for St. Bridget, one of the, the three patron saints of Ireland, um, on the CD where I experimentally accompany a plain chant scola mm. of six men singing the, singing the chant. Actually, it might be four men. I might be, I might be telling lies. I can't, can't quite remember. Um, accompanied by an early Irish harp. So I'm curious what that sonority is. So mm. indirectly, I mean, I'm, um, it's speculative that I do that. Um, but there are no ecclesiastical manuscripts that I know of that have secular music in them much. There are a few, there are a few interesting pieces from the, the 1200s, um, but they're not, that have some you know, they have some polyphony, they have some harmony attached, but they're not, they're not early Irish harp pieces. Mm. So no, there's, that's a very long winded way of saying, no, I don't think the monks did preserve music specific to the early Irish harp. Okay. I, I just was curious if it just happened to, yeah. you know, um, fit in with the... I know, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting question because it's always a possibility that, you know, we might find something. Mm. Um, but I think also because it was an oral tradition for so long that the monastic tradition, which is sort of dying out by the by the 16th or 17th century, there aren't very many monks left in monasteries. Um, that's so that the, the music doesn't start to get. I mean, that, that's the heyday of the early Irish harp. It's the heyday of the oral tradition. I think nobody would think of that there was any reason to write it down. It's only later when everyone suddenly realized that the tradition was on its knees that you realize, uh oh, if we don't write this down, there'll be no record of it. But in the, the, the 14th, 15th, 16th century, nobody saw what was coming. It was a, a stable Gaelic society and nobody realized what was coming down the tracks that all of that cultural um, treasure was going to be lost. Wow. And, and how do you how do you go about approaching the accompaniment? Like, so the left hand um, in these arrangements? Well, I suppose I've been thinking about this for years and years and years, but eventually it became uh, my PhD subject um, over the last five years. So I, I think we've all, those of us who are looking at the manuscripts have been noticing for quite some years that, well, to, to back up a bit, I suppose the, the narrative is that none of the accompaniment has survived and that what we have in Irish music are only the tunes, only the melodies, and therefore we have to just make up accompaniments in whatever style we do. Um, and nowadays, the, the tradition that I grew up with that I still hear on modern Irish harps is that there's, uh, it's, I suppose, influenced by European classical music in that there's a right hand and a left hand and the left hand plays a bass line or it plays chords and it harmonizes with the tune and it's consistent and it carries on throughout. So, there, you know, there's a bass line mm -hmm. and there's the tune and the bass line can be uh, continuous, sort of in a sort of 18th century kind of way. Or when people play jigs and reels now, they do a, uh, they do a sort of more jazzy thing with a syncopated 
bass playing on offbeats. That's another possibility. Or we have the kind of Victorian idea of playing, you know, arpeggiated chords that still carries on in some some corners and people do that as well. So there are different ways. There are di lots of different styles in modern Irish harping. But when I looked at um, the, the, uh, Edward Bunting's field notebook, and he must have had many field notebooks, but there's kind of there's only really one set of pages that got stuck together in the 19th century. Um, when I started looking at that, and Anne Heyman, of course, had been the first person to point out to me, she said, look, there's the little letter B sometimes. You see a, a lower note below beneath the stave, and he'll write B. Hmm. And, you know, there are lots of that. And sometimes he just writes writes in little snippets of, you know, what I was thinking of as bass in, in when I started out uh, working at this. And so I started to look at this, and I thought, huh, the narrative isn't quite accurate. We do know there is information about how they played or there's, there's more than no information. Let's put it that way. So it's worth exploring. So um, five years ago, I put it on an academic footing and I decided that I would really sit down and look at this. Um, and I'm very happy to say that I'm, I've kind of, I'm just at the end of this because three weeks ago I had my PhD viva. And so I'm at the end of that process now. So, you know, which is great because yeah. there comes a point where you just you, you want to be done and dusted and you, you want to get the information out there. You don't want to keep just, carry, I mean, I will always research, but it's nice to get to a, uh, a moment where, you, you, you know, you get to some kind of comma or full stop. So um, I started working on this five years ago and now, um, and then I narrowed it down because I realized that most of what I was still calling bass, because I don't call it the bass any, any longer. Um, most of it was in pieces that were collected from Dennis O'Hampsey, this, mm. this, this super interesting old man who was playing in Belfast. The bunting clearly thought was, he thought he was the most interesting one. He said he's the only one who's playing in the true old way with long nails and um, uh, he's playing the old music and all, all the rest of it. So um, I've made an analysis of eight of his pieces, which really contain the most information that we have. And I've sort of put a taxonomy together of trying to figure out, well, are there, you know, can we talk about this? C can we um, somehow put it in categories, what he's doing? Mm. So now I've come up with categories for what he's doing. And um, I suppose the reason I no longer call it the base is that I don't think there is a base in early Irish harping. And I know that, you know, I can see that people may be at my front door with pitchforks and torches <laughs> if I say this, because this is really going against what, you know, we've always done here. But it's very clear from playing the old Irish harp with its incredible resonance of its strings. You know, it's got these long resonating strings. And it's clear from looking at what Bunting managed to copy down from what O'Hamsey was playing. Um, and also, it's very clear from comparing that with music from 150 years earlier in Scotland, these Luke manuscripts, they do the same thing. Hmm. And if I broadly encapsulate it for you, it's that there's no harmony, there's no attempt to have a separate bass line, which is independent and which is continuous and which harmonizes with the treble. That's hmm. not where it's at. That's, that's not what they did. It's clear now from looking at the music, that's not what they did. Um, it's a much older... I suspect medieval idea and it's much simpler in that uh, O'Hamsey, for example, well, uh, I suppose to encapsulate it, it's that there's no harmony, that there's an echo effect. It's an echoing. Mm. Um, and when you say the left hand, 
it's true for me it's the left hand too like it would be for you because we both play harps on our right on our right shoulder but actually the early irish harpers play the harp on their left shoulder for that so for them it's their right hand right uh, so for now I, I i just call it the lower hand and i i don't i used to call it the bass hand uh, so in class, if I had people playing on different shoulders, you just say, well, the treble hand or the bass hand, and everybody knew what that meant for them. But I don't call it the bass hand any longer because there is no bass. Mm. So I call it the lower hand and I call it the lower register because I think how we talk about it determines how we think about it. If we keep calling it the bass hand and the bass, mm. we will keep thinking in our modern way of a continuous bass line. So um, I talk about the lower hand and the lower register. And what um, O'Hamsey is doing is he's, he's using sort of echo effects. So if he plays, an, um, if he plays a strong note in his treble hand, mm. he might echo it in the bass. Sometimes he plays two notes. Those ones, you know, an octave lower than I'm singing them. So the piece we're going to hear is this set of variations I've spoken about on Lady of the Desert, composed by the Harper Cornelius Lyons in the first half of the 18th century. And listen out in the tune at, at the beginning, because for the whole tune, the um, the lower register that I'm playing is what uh, Bunting copied down from O'Hampsey. Mm. Uh, and then there are four variations. There are two running variations, but the two other ones that are uh, slow and evocative also listen out for the lower register there because most of that is what um, Bunting copied down from O'Hampsey's playing. So I think it's a it's a nice snapshot. It's it's as close as we can kind of get to what um, an 18th century harper was doing. I don't claim that I'm reproducing it, not at all. How, how could I, how could anybody make that claim? I have no idea how close I'm getting, but I know for sure this is as close as we're getting at the moment is to reproduce not only the tune, but the lower register as well on a copy of O'Hamsey's harp.
And so when you look at all of these pieces, it becomes very clear. You have like things moving in octaves, either simultaneously in octaves or staggered. So you have this kind of thing, or you have little riffs mm. in gaps, but often it's, or more often than not, it's in a melodic gap. It's where you have a long note that's hanging on in the tune. They'll do something. Hmm. They'll do something in the lower register. And is there um, a lot of crossing of the hands as well, or not, not really? Um, I haven't come across any crossing of the hands, okay. I'd have to say. Um, the hands, you can tell by the wear marks on surviving instruments hmm. in the museums that from the later, from the, the Middle Ages already, the hands were in, were in separate registers. Because if you look at the Trinity College harp or the Queen Mary harp, in, uh, Trinity College harps in Dublin, the Brian Brew harp, the Queen Mary harp is in Scotland. Um, already you can see by the wear marks that the hands, you know, the hands are separated in register. And that's also true, I think, of any of the harps I've looked at in the National Museum. And the, the, certainly what I'm looking at in the manuscripts as well um, backs that up that there's a separation of registers between the two hands. The, the, the um, treble hand is playing the tune and the, the lower register hand is doing, you know, all sorts of things around it, but it's not playing. Hmm. Well, I mean, there are, there are a few moments where um, you have, let me see, where it changes round, where, for example, the lower hand is actually playing the tune and the treble hand is doing sort of little frippery things. So it'll go yum, tuddledum, tum, tuddledum, tom, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, but it's the, but the, the melody has moved firmly into the lower register. It's not divided between the two hands, you know? Right. So the melody is either up top or it's down bottom. But having said that, yeah, there are moments where it's sort of divided between the two. So for example, Carolyn is a really good example of that. There's a Carolyn-esque thing that he does, which I think he sort of picked up from Vivaldi and Gemignani and the, the 18th century European composers that were being heard in Dublin. You've got a little riff in the treble mm. and, a, and a corresponding one lower down. And you, so it's what I now call antiphony. So you have, you have like this answering back and forth mm. between registers. And that happens all the time in Carolyn. Um, and I think that's really very interesting it's a sort of 18th century idea but even even for Carolyn that was the that was the um the worry for me the thing that would sort of you know wake me up in my nerdy way in the middle of the night all these years was well okay I can see what O'Hamsty's doing but maybe he's really old-fashioned and maybe the other harpers aren't doing that at all maybe they're playing lush bass hand and I just don't realize it hmm. and I thought okay so who are the guys who are the lushest the most European Baroque of the Irish harpers. And the two candidates are um, Cornelius Lyons, who composed these variations on Lady of the Desert. And he's super Baroque because he's uh, from Cork, but he works for the Earl of Antrim, actually for two successive Earls of Antrim in the northeast of Ireland. Mm. And the, Earl, the Earls of Antrim were, they were... Um, operating in standard Anglo culture. So, you know, they would have a house in London. So he would go to London, he would come back to Dublin. He's not, he's not out in the sticks somewhere um, with maybe vernacular traditional musicians. He's in a very fancy drawing room in Antrim, which is going to have a harpsichord and possibly a cello and maybe the gentleman piper comes to play as well. But he's hearing uh, European music. And so... Um, maybe we can play it on the podcast because it's one of the PhD pieces I recorded 
was this series of uh, variations on Lady of the Desert. And the fast running variations, when you hear them, if you heard them played on a harpsichord, accompanied by a harpsichord on a Baroque violin, you'd go, well, that's nothing to do with Ireland. That's just standard 18th century European music. Right, right. Um, so I thought, well, he's probably going to, you know, he's a good candidate for lush bass. And Carolyn, as we all know, we always, we always say, well, he's very Baroque. He's very ins- influenced by the Italians. So I thought it's going to be the two of them. Mm. Um, well, interestingly, Cornelius Lyons, um, this, he, he composed another set of variations that O'Hamsey played. And there we have um, some lower register in one of these running variations. And instead of harmonizing, instead of being the bass that would harmonize, which is exactly what we expect right there, he just goes in octaves with the tune. Hmm. He goes E, E, B, D, D, A, and where the tune goes E, E, D. It's like, whoa, no harmony, hmm. precisely where we expect it. It's like, so even in the situation that's most likely to be a European response to the music, there's none. Hmm. And then um, all my Christmases came together in 2019 when my colleague Simon Chadwick uh, sent me a quote he'd found in a 19th century English Encyclopedia. Uh, um, when I looked into it, it was it was a uh, uh, it was an article on harp, just harps. And when I looked into it, the person who had written the article was actually Charles Burney, who's a famous English musician, composer, commentator. So a man who knew his onions, he knew what he was talking about, and he said, "Oh, well, of course, Carolyn's harp, uh, Carolyn's music had no bass." It's <laughs> like what? What do you mean Carol's music and no bass? And th- so he goes on and he says, well, as attested to by my friend, uh, Kean Fitzgerald, who um, heard him play many times. And, and so he goes on and on and on. Mm. So I looked into this and it's like, oh, who's Kean Fitzgerald? Well, he's no Joe Soap either. It turns out he's an Irish scientist who was a member of the Royal Society. Uh, he was an extremely cultured man who had fine art in his house, went to the opera. It's clearly musically very astute and literate. And um, in the quote... Uh, Kean Fitzgerald compares the live performances of Carolyn that he had heard and he says, oh yeah, that's nothing like the, um, the edition of his music that was brought out by his son. Hmm. And it's like, oh, but we, can, we think we can look at that because there's um, a fragment of a Carolyn publication in the National Library in Dublin, uh, which we think is the uh, um, a publication that was brought out by Carolyn's son and it has like a, a full baseline. Hmm. So there's Kean Fitzgerald, the man who heard Carolyn, and there's um, um, a surviving source that we can look at. And he says, well, that was nothing like this. Huh. This source, this printed thing, it's nothing like the way the man played. And you go, hmm. wow, okay. So you put that together and you think, well, what do you mean Carolyn had no base? We hmm. still have to come back to this. This is really freaky. Uh, but then when I look at how O'Hamsey played Carolyn, because he played lots of Carolyn as well, and you see... There's just, you know, the odd note of the octave and there are these little riffs and there's the Carolyn-esque antiphony going back and forth between the voices. You think, well, yeah, of course Carolyn played bass. He had two pans in separate registers on a big harp with loads of strings. And we know from the... Of course he's doing something with the other hand. But imagine for somebody like Charles Burney, who's an English composer, he's listening to, you know, if or Kean Fitzgerald, who obviously, you know, was very familiar with European music. They're listening to this stuff and going, that's not a bass. Hmm. That's not a bass as we recognize a bass. You know, it's, that's not it. Hmm. So I think when they say Carolyn has no bass, what he's saying is 
it's you know it's it's sort of like it's star trek hey it's life captain but not not as we know it you know it's Scotty. it's uh, it's like hey well it's a beast captain but not as we recognize it you know it's 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 not a base but it's a base i mean for me as an irish historical irish harpist yeah i'm using my other hand so i could you know you could vaguely call that some kind of bit but it's not a european mm, just uh, um, like a figured a, base european art music base or- yeah. So you just have to think when they say things, where are they coming from? You know? Right. So that was, that was, um, thank you, Simon Chadwick. Cause he found the, he found the quote that put my mind at rest, that my work wasn't just, you know, that, that it was a bit more universal than I had been. That I was concerned that it wasn't universal enough what I was doing, but now I feel pretty confident that there is no base. Hmm. So, and you mean like a figured base or basso continuo yeah, kind of? Yeah, I mean, a... there's no continual, there's no continued, con, there's no, well, there's no continuous bass line mm. of any kind whatsoever. It's much more medieval. You know, if you, if you play medieval music, it's all about the tune and it's the tune. And then you get other little things happening. You know, you get sort of homophony, you know, where you get other lines following the tune in parallel. That's the kind of thing we're looking at. Mm. Not, not, um, 18th century functional harmony, which is what we generally hear on modern harps. We hear a distinct bass, a continuous bass line. Um, but I think that's that's not what happened hmm. in the 18th century in Ireland. When you're you're playing, I mean, you have a huge decay um, on the on the instrument because of the the wire strings and things. How do you? Um, is there any documentation on on dampening techniques or? Is that more of just like a, a sense of the melody and the accompaniment yourself? Like, did anyone write about that or is that? Um... Oh, that's a great question. And actually, it's a wonderful question to be asked just after we talk about whether there is or isn't a bass and what that might look like. Um, because you could say, well, if there's no if there's no harmonic intent in what they're doing with their lower hand, does that mean there's like no harmony in this music? Is it just a tune? But of course, that's not true at all, because once you play um, a few strings on an early Irish harp, um, I mean, maybe I could even demonstrate for you. OK, so let me demonstrate for you. I'm going to grab a harp here. So, for example, if I play a G, G, A, B, C, D and I don't damp anything. Do you hear how that's really soupy and mushy mm. and... There's no clarity at all. But supposing I play you, um, okay, so I'll play you the same thing again, but I will damp the second and fourth ones. I'll damp the A and the C. Hmm. Wow, now what we're hearing is triad, GBD. We're hearing, we're hearing straight harmony. So it's not that there's no harmony on this harp. There's lots of harmony, but it's created organically hmm. from the fact that the strings are so resonant. So depending on what you decide to let ring and what you decide to damp, there's lots of harmony, hmm. but I'm just not superimposing it on top or on the bottom rather. Right. So the um, instrument is, is making the harmony it's, itself. Yeah. The instrument plus my decisions about what I think I want to let ring hmm. and what I don't. And of course, some of that is practical. You just want to damp any notes that are dissonant and leave the consonant ones. So for example, if you're playing GAB, if you're playing three notes in a row, you'll probably damp the one in the middle mm. so that the outer two make a third. Yeah, da, da, yeah, da. You want those to ring. So because, um, just to explain for anybody who's not familiar with consonants and dissonance, if you have, this is consonant. Sounds pretty. But if I played the G and the A together, 
It's dissonant, sounds scrunchy. It's got tension in it. We can't sort of put on our hat and coat and go home when we hear that. We would have to go, ah, yeah, okay. So you can, the tension is relieved when we go somewhere else. That's dissonance. The A, B, that's also dissonant. Mm. But the G, B, ah, mm. very, very uh, relaxed, different, a different thing. Um, and to answer the other part of your question, did anybody write about damping? Yeah, Bunting asked the Harpers. He asked them, all about how they were playing their the techniques of playing their instrument and he put the information that he had or at least some of the information that he had in uh, charts of what he called graces um, for ornaments mm. and he also called them base i think base hand patterns or something so he showed a few chord uh, possible chords that the that the lower hand played and he published that uh, in the introduction to his final publication because he published three books of piano uh, harpsichord or piano arrangements of the music that he had collected so he collected music started collecting in 1792 and in 1796 but it didn't actually come out until 1797 he started publishing hmm. uh, and then in 1809 and then there was a huge gap just before his death his friend said come on come on you need to you know publish the rest of it so he published his largest volume in 1840 and in the introduction to that he had a chapter he said on the 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 manner of playing or the method of playing and vocabulary of the of the old Irish harpers, something like that. And he has these charts of different kinds of ornaments, different things. And he says specifically, you, you, you play them with these fingers and then you damp that one with this finger while that one plays. So very, very specific information about damping. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> Considering he was yeah. what, 19 years old when he was there and he was just going from... Oh, uh, Bunting's the hero. He's yeah. a hero. I mean, I mean, what a guy. Just uh, came from a completely different background. They're all vernacular Irish harpers. They're all Catholic, Irish speaking. He's Anglican, English speaking, church organist trained in European music. But he got it. Hmm. He just got it. He looked at O'Hansi, he listened to it, and he went, this is the real deal. Hmm. This guy is it. And then started to go and visit him in his home and got, you know, he squeezed as much juice out of those guys as he possibly could. And without his work, pfft, None, you know, I, I would have, I'd probably have no option but to play, yeah, play, I don't know, I suppose Carol, Carol and tunes would have survived anyway, but all mm. of the older repertory would have been lost had it not been for him. Wow. So we, we, you know, we owe him a huge debt of gratitude. Absolutely. So another um, piece on your album, the music, music Ireland and the 16th century um, is uh, a piece by Cormac McDermott. So um, I, he seems like an interesting character. I was just wondering if you could just tell us a little more about him. I think he's fascinating because he bridges the gap between Gaelic culture and uh, Jacobean culture, I suppose, because the, you know you have the Tudors all the way through the 16th century. But once Elizabeth I dies in uh, 1603, then James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England. So then we start talking about Jacobean um, culture. And he bridges that gap. Um, he's presumably f one of the McDermott's from uh, Roscommon. And uh, they crop up again in harp history in the 18th century because Mrs. McDermott Rowe, of course, was Carolyn's patron. She, uh, you know, arranged for him to be educated and um, got him his harp and sent him on his way. And he always came back to... Um, to the McDermott Rose. So that family stretched back into the 17th and 16th century. 
um, so we have Cormac McDermott who shows up in London and he's a Protestant of faith, which is interesting because most of the, the vernacular Irish harpies, you think, well, they, they probably stick to their conservative Catholic ways. But <clears throat> obviously when you move to London, you have to, you have to really go with the flow. And so you have a post-Reformation, um, you know, uh, Protestant court. So he becomes a, a Protestant, presumably English speaking harper. And he starts out working for, he, um, he first crops up working for arguably the most important man in England before the Queen's death. So um, Elizabeth I, her right-hand man had been William Cecil. And his son, Robert Cecil, then became Secretary of State to Elizabeth I. So he wielded absolute power in, in England after the Queen. And Cormac MacDermott was one of the musicians um, who was employed at um, Cecil's estate at Hatfield House, this staggeringly beautiful estate um, in the south of England. Hatfield House is a really interesting uh, place for Cormac McDermott to have worked because he would have worked with some very famous English musicians of the day whom Robert Cecil also employed, including uh, Nicholas Lanier, the lute song composer, and uh, John, the, the wonderfully named John Caprario who showed up sometimes and he's actually plain old John Cooper, but he went on a trip to Italy and came back and decided he was John Caprario because that was, you know, that was far more interesting. Sort of in the same way that Carolyn in the 18th century in the first collection of Irish music to be printed in Ireland, he shows up not as Carolyn, but as um, a piece by Signor Carolini, you know, nudge, nudge, <laughs> wink, wink. We know, I think we know who that is. So um, there's Cormac MacDermott absolutely respected and you know playing presumably English Renaissance music with some of the great performers of the day and then he winds up uh, he winds up being the court harper to to, to Elizabeth the first and then uh, to James the first he's particularly interesting to me because he's the only Irishman that we know of who composed music in a European idiom so we're used to all these harpers being Gaelic harpers but actually, here's a harper who is presumably sighted. He's rather than blind. Most of the harpers are blind. He goes off and he's speaking English at the, the English court. And, he's, and some of his compositions survive, these polyphonic compositions in three or five parts. So for, um, on my CD, I recorded four of the pieces. Um, a pavan, which is a very slow, stately dance, followed by an almain, which is a little bit faster. So I recorded a pavan and almain and a pavan and almain. Um, so, yeah, if we, if we can hear one of the almains, that would be fun. And it will give you a sense of an Irishman working in a European music idiom. That's completely rare and unusual to hear. Mm. Um, so it, the music's not, it's not Irish influenced at all. It's purely European. But uh, I recorded it with three vials, so these bowed, uh, bowed Renaissance instruments that are uh, in size between that of a violin and a cello. So uh, we have a treble viol about the size of a violin, then two, two bass viols. Um, I thought it was highly likely that the lute, a Renaissance lute, might have been involved. And of course, I was determined to nudge in and play my early Irish harp as well, because presumably that's exactly what our Cormac would have been doing. Um, and I can't remember which one we were going to hear, but in some of them, I made sure that some of the sections were played only by the lute and the harp together. Because I, I imagine as a, a, 
a sort of aristocratic Irish harper as Cormac McDermott possibly was. He's not going to be content to just sit in the background and play the accompaniment all the time. He probably, these are his tunes. He wants to play them. So I hope you enjoy it. He just sounds like such a character. I think he had must have had a, an extraordinarily interesting life. Unfortunately, there's, I think there's a bit of tragedy involved because he died in 1618. And I don't think he was very old. And there was a plague in London the year he died. So it might be that he died of the plague. Uh, he had a wife and children and he was buried um, in the centre of London near um, St. Martin in the Fields. Uh, it's a, a well-known church in the centre of London. He was, I think, buried in that graveyard. So possibly a, an untimely end to an interesting career. But uh, there were many other, there were other harpers who followed him. Daniel Duffo Cahill was, was the harper um, to two uh, queens, James I's wife, Anne of Denmark. And then later he was harper to Henrietta Maria, the French wife of Charles I. So uh, these harpers were really... They, they did very well for themselves in a, in a royal context. Wow. Uh, is there any further reading that um, the listeners can, you know, if they want to delve into a little bit more about the history of those harpers Ooh. in the courts at all? Yeah, I can probably give you, do you have a, a place on your, uh, near your podcast where I can give you links to yeah, absolutely. articles and books? Absolutely. Okay, let's do that. Uh, the, we have a wonderful harp um, historian and researcher in Ireland called Sean Donnelly. And Sean has written um, 
many interesting articles on the harbors of the Royal Court. Uh, but also if people are familiar with Early Music Magazine, which is the, the main peer-reviewed periodical in, in uh, historical music making, uh, there's one issue of that I can re recommend where Peter Holman also talked about the Royal Harbor Court. And if people really want to get into it, um, the late Dr. Tristram Robson, uh, did one of the first PhDs on early Irish harp repertory um, a number of decades ago. Uh, so he looked at the Irish harp in England between the years 1550 and 1650, which is the, the really interesting moment. So, um, yeah, we can put links to all of those and oh, hopefully people can, can access them through libraries. Thank you. And, and the Historical Harp Society of Ireland is going to be joining with the Somerset Folk Harp Festival this, uh, this July. That's right. We're really excited. So. It was such a nice invitation from the, the fabulous Cathy D'Angelo, a woman who has just more energy than I will have in five <laughs> lifetimes. She's really something. And like Anne Heyman, she's unbelievably generous in her mentoring and her her support and her enthusiasm for what we're doing. So we're delighted to um, that the first day of our festival on the 25th of July, it's the last day of Somerset. It's Somerset's Sunday. It's our day one. And so uh, we've done a really good deal for Somerset harp participants. They can come to day one as an add-on to the summer festival. Then if they like what they see, they can come to the rest of the festival as well. And we'll still give them a really good deal. Oh, and for anybody else, um, we're launching our um, newly dedicated festival website at festival.irishharp.org. Uh, that's going to be online in the next uh, week or two, hopefully. And there they can buy tickets uh, just to concerts if they want to have a listen, if they want to tip, dip their toe in the water and hear more um, early Irish harp or fabulous Shannon singing mm -hmm. or uh, piping. Um, or if they want to attend the whole week, we have... 33 live events on Zoom, wow. and we have seven concerts and talks uh, that are pre-recorded. Mm. So if people would like to join us for that, they'd be more than welcome. But get in fast, because we keep our numbers really small in class, so everybody has um, an intimate experience. So we only have 12 in each class, wow. um, and we have four simultaneous classes each day and, and all of the other things besides concerts, talks, um, and the Lifetime Achievement Award for Anne Heyman. So we have all of that between the 25th and the 29th of July. So if people want to know more, they can just go to www.irishharp.org. Excellent. And if people want to find out more about you and your music and your research, um, they can go to your website. Well, they can go to my infinitely less uh, snazzy website than all of these news, new websites we're making for the Harp Society. It's like it's the cobbler's children has no shoes thing, as we say on this side of the world. <clears throat> so I'm so busy looking after the Harp Society's websites. My own is just this little homemade site. But you can go there and you'll certainly have links to my to my CD shop and, and everything I'm up to. And that's just my name. That's just SiobhanArmstrong.com. Of course, I say just my name. You have to be able to spell Siobhan, don't you, if you want to get to my site. So let me spell it for you so it's www dot and then it's s for sugar i o b for birthday h a n for nothing armstrong all lowercase all together dot com excellent thank you <laughs> you're welcome you're welcome i just love like when you're finding this research that you can find like first person accounts and then figure out like yeah. how it works and then having the instruments being built and i suppose the 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 thing to point out here is it's a team sport, that if we all try and do these things on our own, 
it's okay. If you're Anne Heyman, maybe you can get quite far. She was so single-minded and she had, you know, nobody particularly supported her fears. She just kept at it. Mm. But if we have community, if we can build community and help each other to do things, we get so much further, so much faster. And I suppose that's my wish with the Historical Harp Society of Ireland is that we provide community for people. And we, we already see it with our summer festival when people can come from all, you know, all around the world and we meet up year after year and we're family for each other. So that's one of my most important jobs right now is to help build community so that we can all help each other and so that we can share our research and share our discoveries so that we can build on each other's work rather than everybody just trying to do it themselves because as as you say it requires heart builders and it requires giving them good information and it requires access to sources and people having access to rental harps so they can learn to play and that they have access to tuition and i suppose what this year has taught us is that um it's possible to have online tuition with you know the any harpist of your dreams around the world we're we're, we're all I, I suppose i was doing it anyway but now we're all well used to teaching people halfway mm. around the world and so we need to keep that community going and engage with each other so that we um have the most fun we can possibly have thank you so much for being here with me today and i just can't wait to to see you at Somerset and to... Oh, thanks, Maureen. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you for having me on your wonderful podcast. Thank you so, so much. Thanks for listening to Moon Over the Trees Music and Theatre Productions podcast. Dive into the show notes at moonoverthetrees.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and subscribe to the podcast.